Let us pray. Holy and gracious Father, we thank and praise you for your grace, a grace that comes to us, a grace that seeks us out, a grace that lifts us up. Holy and gracious Father, speak your grace to us this morning. Let us see that you deliver your people, you deliver us through your grace and mercy, through Christ our Lord. Lift our eyes to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you like to take a bite out of the cross? No, I'll ask you again. How would you like to take a bite out of the cross? Some of you are going, what in the world are you talking about, Pastor Russ? I bet most of you wouldn't, um, but today is Holy Cross Day. And the Holy Cross Day was originated basically when Constantine decided to build a church where Christ died. And there through the rubble, as they were looking through this, this is 300 years after Christ had died anyway, 300 and some, they had found in the rubble of Jerusalem, they found a cross. And they were convinced that that cross was the actual cross that Jesus died on. Now, how in the world would they know that? I don't know. But what's even more remarkable is that after they built the church, they had put the cross on display. And even more remarkable than that is that when pilgrims came, they actually had to post guards because the pilgrims who traveled to that church, to that cross, would kiss the cross. And in kissing the cross, they would try to take a bite out of the cross so that they would have a splinter of the cross to carry back with them home. Isn't that amazing? So how would you like to take a bite of the cross? can't imagine that scene. But, I don't, but I, I don't know what's worse, the fact that pilgrims wanted to take a bite of the cross or that the church stood guard to make sure they didn't. I don't know. But it seems to me and it seems to, to many of us that the church whether and Christians seem to get things all mixed up and it's not new and it's not exclusive to just Christians. It's occurred all throughout the history of God's people. God's people tend to make a mess of things. God's people tend to not quite understand what's going on. In a reading from the book of Numbers, we see that the people of Israel are utterly confused once again. And in their confusion, in their fear, they begin to murmur or grumble. If you've ever read the Old Testament, that seems to be what the Israelites do really well. They murmur. They grumble. Now, what you might not know, though, is that for me, when I've heard, read that the Israelites grumbled, I always just thought that they were babies. They are simply, oh, there they go again. They're mumbling and grumbling in the desert. Why can't they be stronger and tougher? That's how I've always seen it. Any of you seen it that way, usually interpreted that way? Probably most of us have. What's interesting, though, is if you actually look up in the Hebrew, the mumbling isn't simply mumbling or complaining. There's a real urgency with that word. There's an urgency in their cry. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's they're hyperventilating with panic. And so the people aren't simply being babies there. They're freaked out. They're scared to death. They're panicking. And what they think is happening is that they think they're actually going to die. And so in verse 5 it says, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? 
That's not some ironic statement. It's not a little complaint. They actually believe at that moment God is going to have them die in the wilderness. Real panic. Real fear. This is important, and especially for today's lesson from Numbers, is because most of us, when we read this lesson from Numbers 21, we think it's a lesson about not complaining. And we think that, that that's what the whole point is. Don't complain or else God's going to send snakes after you to bite you. I mean, we think that way, but that's not the point of this passage. This passage isn't about complaining. And you know this, first, because there's panic. But it's more than that. If God wanted to simply silence them from complaining, God would just make them mute. Or if God wanted them to not complain, on top of the pole would be a big sign. Thou shall not complain. Not a serpent. So God's not after teaching them a simple lesson on, on not complaining. It's okay to complain. Moses complained. He didn't have snakes bite him. David complained. Snakes weren't after them. It's okay for the people of God to complain to God. Notice I said to God, so, so don't go complain to me. Just, just kidding. <laughs> it's okay to complain. Half a prayer, or at least maybe a third of prayer, probably should be complaint. Should be frustration. It's okay to complain. So in your prayer time, complain to God. He's not going to strike you down. He's not going to send snakes after you. If you need to complain, do it. It's okay to complain. This passage isn't about complaining. No, the real issue of Numbers 21 is faith. The people in the wilderness, the Israelites there, do not believe that God in his goodness will deliver them. Even though God delivered them from Egypt, even though God delivered them through the Red Sea, even though God delivered them from hunger, from thirst, at this point, they still do not trust that God is truly good and that God will deliver them. But isn't that how it always is? Isn't that how it is with us? Back in the garden, wasn't it the serpent who told Eve, you will not surely die when you eat this fruit? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, what the serpent was saying to Eve is, God's holding something back from you. God doesn't want you to have that. You can't really trust that God, can you? He doesn't want what's best for you. He's not a good God. If he was, he would give you this fruit, but he doesn't want you to have it. See how the serpent works? And there's, there's a reason why there's serpent back in the garden and then now a serpent on the pole. There's a real connection there. You can't trust this God, the devil says. Now, we fall into this trap as well. We, too, question God's goodness all the time. I mean, we live in a time in America where the greatest, we live in a time of the greatest abundance in the history of the world. And yet, when the economy is going a little shaky, suddenly we panic and we think God will not provide for us. Or we live in a time when there's great advances in the medical community. We get sick, 
and we wonder if God has forsaken us. I mean, it seems to, to me that we are always looking for the black lining in the silver cloud. We're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And what's worse is because, and we do this because we are ultimately deep down afraid of God. We think somehow he really isn't good. He really won't provide. He really won't take care of us. And so we're afraid. And in that fear, humanity does things. They, they Adam and Eve, hid from God because they're afraid. The people in the wilderness complained because they were afraid. The Pharisees tried to be perfect, to follow the law. Why? So that God wouldn't be mad at them. Those early pilgrims thought if they could just take a bite of the cross, they'd have a splinter of the cross. Surely God would then smile upon them. Or in our day, if we're good enough, moral enough, give enough, then we'll remain on God's good side. Better not be bad, because God might get mad at us. We are afraid of God. We don't trust that he's truly good and good to us. Did you hear about the children that lined up in the cafeteria for lunch? At the head of the table was a large basket of apples, and next to the basket of apples, to keep the kids in line, was a little note that said, God is watching. Take only one apple. Well, the kids, or take only one, it said. Well, the kids were working their way down the line, making sure they only took one. But at the end of this table was a huge pile of chocolate chip cookies. And so one of the kids decided to write a note. And he put the note right by the cookies. And he said, take all the cookies you want. God is watching the apples. <laughs> I like that. If we can only be that bold, that creative, if we can have faith like that little child. But instead, we're afraid. We get afraid of God. And so what must God do to correct our vision of him? What must God do to, to lure us out of hiding? What must God do to actually, so that we would trust him and know that he is good? And that our hearts would rejoice in him and not be terrified of him? What must God do? I'd say it'd spoil us. But that didn't seem to work for Adam and Eve. Didn't seem to work for Americans to have more than anyone in the world, you know, in the history of the world. Doesn't seem to work for us. So spoiling doesn't seem to work. No, in our passage from Numbers, God takes a different tact. And what's so interesting in this book of, of Numbers is that God actually becomes, for a moment, what the people think he is. The people think God's a monster. They think that God's their enemy. And so what does God do? He says... He actually becomes their enemy. God actually does what they fear. God sends fiery serpents filled with venom. I mean, talk about a terrifying prospect. I don't like snakes. I don't know if any of you do. I mean, it's bad enough when we think God is our enemy. How much worse is it when God actually becomes our enemy? I mean, we cringe at such a thought. 
But God, that's what God does. He actually becomes their enemy. He sends snakes upon them, filled with venom. Well, the people in, in, in seeing this and experiencing this realize God was never their enemy. They realize, oh, God has now become their enemy. And so what do they do? They cry out for mercy. They plead God for mercy. Thankfully, graciously, God heard their plea. He answered and gave them mercy, but in a very unexpected way. God didn't take away the snakes. The mercy was instead that he commanded Moses to put a snake on a pole. Now, why in the world would God do that? The reason is because God wants them to face the very thing that's killing them. God wants them to look up at that serpent. And in looking up at that serpent, they can see what's truly killing them isn't actually those serpents on the ground, but it's their unbelief. They have to look at the serpent, and there they see the real problem. It's not the physical serpents biting them. Rather, it goes way back to the garden, the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin that we do not trust God, the sin that thinks God is the enemy, the sin of waiting for the other shoe to drop. That is what must die in them and what must die in us. And so by giving the sign of the serpent, God is actually having mercy. God is being gracious. God is telling them, I am not your enemy. Because an enemy does not relent. An enemy does not stop. If God was their enemy, God would have wiped them out. But he doesn't. He provides a serpent. He calls them to look up at it. In order to tell them, the deeper truth, that they don't have to panic. God is not their enemy. God is for them, not against them. God delivered them from Egypt, and God would carry them through the wilderness because God is a good and gracious God, a merciful God. A few years ago, a, a young man came into my office to confess sin. And afterwards, I absolved him of his sin, and we prayed together. And, and then he told me that that sin that he had committed had plagued him for a long time. And I remember saying, well, you know, sin does cause guilt. And he said, you know, guilt was no, never the problem. <laughs> I go, oh, okay, then why are you in here? He said, the reason is because I got away with my sin. He said, I, nothing happened to me when I did this sin. And he said, from that day on, I kept waiting for that shoe to drop. I kept waiting for when I get caught for this sin, and it never happened. And it drove me nuts because I wished, God, I wished it would happen so then I could deal with it. But it never did. And so I had to confess this. And I thought for a moment, I thought, and I, I said to him, I said, you know, God doesn't always punish us for our sin. He says, really? I go, think about it. If, if God punished us for every sin we did, none of us would live to adulthood. God doesn't always drop the shoe on us. The shoe was dropped on Christ. Christ, so that we might just get away with our sin. Because God's not up there as a bookkeeper. Say, no, 
Five sins today. Five punishments tomorrow. It's not who God is. God is gracious to us. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. Heaven, eternity. And so together, the two of us then prayed once again, but this time, we just thank God for his, his unexpected mercy. The mercy that would even let us get away with the sin. God's mercy is always unexpected. On the cross, Jesus had every right to wipe out everyone there. On the cross, Jesus had every right to call down legions of angels. That's what you would expect God to do. But God did the unexpected. Jesus stayed on the cross. And Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Reformation on this Holy Cross Day. Look to the cross and live. See the death that had to occur. Not a death to appease some cosmic bank account. Not a death in order to teach us a lesson. Instead, it's the death of thinking that God is the enemy. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves you. He created this world for you. God made a covenant with Abraham for you. God led Israel out of Egypt for you. God put a snake on a pole for you. God died on the cross for you. God enters water in holy baptism for you. God enters bread and wine for you. God is not your enemy. God is your friend, and he will do whatever it takes to have you as his own. Isn't that a lot better than taking a bite out of wood? In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> <laughs>